Hello. Welcome to The Canadian Farmer. This podcast reflects my personal opinions, views, and interpretation of information and was prepared in my personal capacity. This podcast does not represent any institution, corporation, association, or society. Just me. And I am Michelle. I'm a Canadian pharmacist, and like you, I love a good podcast. The novelty of the podcast is that you can multitask, right? While you drive or cook or run, you can listen and get great information and feel like you've made the most of that time. There's a ton of great content available for pharmacists in general, but information specific to the Canadian pharmacist is a bit harder to find. So here we are, breaking some soil for pharmacy podcasts in the North. Regardless of where you are, If you're a pharmacist or a pharmacy technician, there's no way you've escaped discussion around changes and advances in this profession. It's true, being a pharmacist today is a lot to take on, but in my opinion, this topic has been exhausted. The changing scope, the increased demand, the gravity of the responsibilities. We've done a great job at highlighting what we're up against, but we aren't doing a great job at pushing through it. So here's the intention. To create a place where you can come and listen and leave a little more knowledgeable, a little more confident, and a whole lot more motivated. That's right, friends. I'm agreeing to do the legwork. I'll do the research and gather the key information, and I'll summarize and highlight it for you in each podcast. We can cover chronic diseases, guidelines, regulations around prescribing, drug recall management, whatever is of interest at the time. Let me know what you want to hear. You can find me on Facebook. My name is Michelle Stewart, Canadian Farmer, P-H-A-R-M-E-R. I think this podcast is important for so many reasons. First, my sanity. Our role can be stressful in addition to all of the other things that we're juggling in our lives. And it's tough to feel like you're on your game because the rules keep on changing. And that's where the stress is, right? The anticipation, worrying about doing it right and following the regulations, checking all the boxes. For me, I feel like I'm always trying to catch up and scrambling to find the information I need. And I want a place where I can sort it out and zone in on what's relevant to what I'm doing every day. Just practical, concise, and useful information. And I want the luxury of not having to read it to be able to hit play at my convenience and get what I need. The general format for each show will be a review of information to bring us up to speed on therapeutics, some conversation on how to use this information in real life, and also some general discussion around what's happening in the profession. If this sounds like what you're after, then welcome to the Canadian Farmer. I'm glad you're here. Since this is the first podcast, I get to choose what we talk about. But before I get into what that will be, I want to tell you a bit more about me. I work full-time in community pharmacy and graduated in 2009. I'm married and I have two boys who are ages 8 and 3. Note the five-year gap. Labor and delivery with my first was tough and I didn't think I could do it again. My mother was right though. You do forget the pain. But for me, it took five years for the memories to fade enough to do it again. (laughs) The second time was much easier though. So if you're listening and nodding your head, I hope this gives you some encouragement. Becoming a mother was difficult for sure, and becoming a pharmacist was difficult too. But what I'm learning is that the struggle doesn't ever end. It changes for sure, but the challenges keep coming, 
at home and at work. What's nice is when once in a while someone gives you a lift, a push, a nudge even, some kind of an edge that moves you in the right direction without you having to hold your breath and push through the pain. Or in our case, without having to read journal articles or summarize guidelines for hours. So sit back or keep running and just listen. So where shall we begin? I feel like I need a refresher in everything. I didn't graduate yesterday. So narrowing down our first topic hasn't been easy for me. But I've decided to go with something practical and useful and timely. Of course, it's going to be diabetes. Since November is Diabetes Awareness Month, it seems like a good idea. So here we go. I'm going to try to answer some questions once and for all that haunt me every single day. And maybe you're wondering too, with so many options available for treatment, how do we decide which drug or combination is best for who? And is it okay to start on a combination of antihyperglycemics right away? And while we're at it, should I be confirming that patients with diabetes are also on a statin, an ACE, and what about aspirin? By the end of this session, in just a few minutes, we'll have it all sorted out. I've gone over and over the Canadian clinical practice guidelines, and I've simplified the recommendations to the point that I can make some generalizations. Keep in mind, though, individual factors should always be taken into consideration, and we'll talk about some specific circumstances. And if your focus is long-term care, the recommendations are a lot different in that population. This could be a focus of another session that we cover. All right. It all begins with the A1C. This is the trigger. When a person's A1C creeps above the threshold of 7%, they have initiated the process of diabetic management. And they could be encouraged to make adjustments to their lifestyle, or they could be treated right away with either metformin or a combination. This depends on how much above target they are. For patients less than 1.5% above target, for most people this would be an A1C of 8.5% or less, we have the option of a three-month grace period to initiate lifestyle change or start metformin. For patients screened with an A1C more than 1.5% above target, so for most people this would be above 8.5%, you can actually begin on a combination of metformin and a second agent. That answers our first question. If we have a patient never previously treated for diabetes and they're beginning two agents at once, we know that this is rational if their A1C is above 8.5%. There's another group of people that require much more intensive treatment right from the beginning. And these are patients who have symptoms of hyperglycemia or metabolic decompensation. They require insulin and in a community pharmacy, someone like this will be referred to urgent care. All right. So the, for, for the majority, metformin is the go-to. However, if our patient has poor kidney function, this might not be an option. Metformin is contraindicated if creatinine clearance is less than 30 mils per minute or if the person has hepatic impairment. So creatinine clearance should be the first thing we check after A1C. And it's also something we need to monitor for regularly because it can certainly change over time, especially in this population. Now suppose our patient begins metformin and their A1C is still not in target after three months. How aggressive should we be? The answer is very. The goal is to get A1C in target within three to six months. And so if metformin doesn't do the job, we move ahead. And the next flag that is front of mind is the presence or absence of cardiovascular disease. And that's because there are three agents proven to be better than the rest if cardiovascular disease is apparent. I'm gonna try and say them for you here. Empagliflozin, 
canagliflozin, and liraglutide. Trade names are Invocana and Jardians, which are taken orally, and Victoza, a subcutaneous injection. So if cardiovascular disease is an issue for the patient, these three are the prime choice. If it's not an issue, there's a lot more to choose from, and the selection comes down to individualizing therapy based on parameters like renal function, comorbidities like heart failure, albuminuria, cost, and patient preference. Diabetes Canada is a fantastic resource to compare agents and select the most appropriate. The biggest advantage for choosing one agent over another often comes down to avoiding weight gain and hypoglycemia. Now we've covered the basics on when and how to begin and escalate treatment. The other part I want to review is when risk reduction is required with an additional agent. Offhand, can you remember who gets a statin, an ACE or ASA? Well, it seems to come down to age and cardiovascular comorbidities. There are three levels. Diabetics over 40 or those over 30 who have had diabetes for more than 15 years. This group gets a statin alone. We add an ACE or an ARB if our patient is over 55 and has additional cardiovascular risk factors or microvascular disease. So these are our patients who have had hypertension, albuminuria, neuropathy, retinopathy, kidney disease, and those who smoke. ASA comes into play if the patient had cardiovascular disease, different from cardiovascular risk factors. This means they have ischemia, peripheral artery disease, or cerebral carotid disease. These people have a history of angina, heart attack, stents, bypass surgery, TIAs, or strokes. And that's it. That's all there is to it. Easy, right? Okay, let's go over it one more time. If you're diabetic but otherwise healthy and you're not over 30, you don't need anything more than to get your A1C in range. If you're over 30 and have been diabetic for more than 15 years, you can start a statin. Otherwise, you'll get the statin prescription on your 40th birthday. The next milestone age is 55. When you get to 55, we determine if you have any risk factors that warrant the addition of an ACE or an ARB. Remember, these include high blood pressure, smoking, high total cholesterol, albuminuria, neuropathy, renal disease, or retinopathy. And then ASA can be added on at any age if there's been a history of angina, heart attack, cardiac surgery, or stroke. I feel better already. Having reviewed the guidelines and putting the recommendations into practice is the next goal. We don't want to have the information just for the sake of regurgitating it. So how do we use these guidelines when we show up for work tomorrow? I've got some suggestions for you. Starting now, we can pay more attention to the age of our patients, noting those approaching age 40 who should start on a statin, or those over 55 with high blood pressure, for example, who would benefit from the addition of an ACE inhibitor. We should also skim over creatinine clearance, as this can change a lot over a year, and the drugs that were appropriate last year may be off limits now. Metformin should be discontinued in patients with creatinine clearance less than 30 mils per minute, or in cases of hepatic impairment. And we know to keep an eye on A1C. 7% is the lucky number, and we want our patients to be below this threshold. And we know that if A1C is above 8.5%, it might be a good idea to initiate treatment with a combination of agents in order to get into target within that six-month period. Victoza, Jardians, or Invocana, those are our drugs of choice to add to metformin when A1C remains high in patients with cardiovascular disease. Mortality rates are lower when patients with angina, previous heart attack, or stroke are given one of these three agents versus other antihyperglycemics. 
All right, we're on point with getting familiar with the recommendations. But I don't want to spend all of our time together talking about medication. Let's take a minute to shift our focus away from medication management. When you think about diabetes, what first comes to mind? For me, it's insulin, glucometers, test strips. Do you ever think about depression and anxiety? It may not always be on our radar when we're talking to patients about self-management of diabetes, but it is becoming obvious that psychological effects of having diabetes are very real. In fact, there is an actual scale to measure the level of anxiety around the diagnosis. It's called the diabetes distress scale. Many patients carry not only the burden of managing diabetes, but also attempting to manage the stress of the diagnosis, social relationships, and patient-provider relationships. As if having diabetes distress isn't bad enough, it's also associated with negative outcomes, including increased A1C, blood pressure, LDL, and mortality, and poor quality of life, and it's more common in young women. Before reviewing the guidelines for this podcast, I hadn't even heard about diabetes distress. And another new term I came across in the guidelines is psychological insulin resistance. This is when a person has a strong and negative reaction when insulin is recommended by their healthcare provider, and it's also quite common. This is most common in type 2 diabetes, and people with psychological insulin resistance will perceive switching to insulin as a personal failure, or they believe that because they're on insulin, their condition is more serious than before. One of the reasons could also be the fear and anxiety around injections and hypoglycemia. And did you know persistent fear of hypoglycemia is actually an indication for referral to a mental health specialist? Wouldn't it be great if we could read the minds of our patients? Okay, wait, maybe that's too broad. I'm not sure I'd want to know. But wouldn't it be nice if we knew about how they really felt about their health? How likely is it that a person would confide in us that they're feeling this way? I think the only way to even begin to help is to normalize these feelings. Maybe during counseling, we should be explaining that distress, anxiety, and fear are normal, and we can help to manage diabetes more intensively in the beginning when a patient is the most overwhelmed. It's definitely something to think about. Okay, that is it for today, friends. I hope you've enjoyed the session on diabetes, and if you have an idea for our next time together, let me know on Facebook. You can find me by searching Michelle Stewart, Canadian Farmer. Enjoy your day, and thanks again for listening. Bye-bye.